KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the Taliban triumph. Andrew Basevich will comment on 20 years of American hubris and ignorance, promises made and promises broken. Also, there was only one member of Congress who voted against the authorization for the use of force back in 2003. Joe Biden voted for the bill. He was a senator at the time. Bernie Sanders voted for the bill. He was in the House. John Lewis voted for the bill. The only one who didn't, the only one who said no to giving the president virtually unlimited power to wage war in Afghanistan or really anywhere else he wanted was Representative Barbara Lee from Northern California. Now there's a documentary out about her. It's called Barbara Lee, Speaking Truth to Power. It opens Friday at the Royal in West LA and streaming Friday on iTunes, Apple TV, and at Lemley Virtual Cinema. Ella Taylor will have our review and Barbara Lee will be in LA on Saturday doing a Q&A after the 4.30 screening at Lemley's Royal Theater in West LA. But first, Afghanistan in American politics, past and present. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today, as usual, at home in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Good to be here. Well, presidents who lose wars also seem to lose elections. The stalemate in Korea kept Harry Truman from seeking re-election in 1952 and helped Ike win. The stalemate in Vietnam in 1968 kept LBJ from seeking re-election and helped Nixon win. The stalemate in Iraq in 2008 helped Obama win. Seems like the lesson of history is that the disastrous end of our war in Afghanistan this past week will also be a political disaster for Biden and the Democrats. I don't think so. For a host of reasons, uh, some good, some bad. Uh, but, you know, it's not always the case that the end of a war, or even the bad end of a war, really rocks American politics. Uh, I would take us back to 1975 uh, Vietnam and the 1976 presidential election. Now, people have made the obvious comparison between the frenzied panic flight uh, from Kabul uh, in the last several days and its you know, precursor in Saigon in 1975, when again, we were caught flat-footed and unawares and unable to get uh, a lot of our allies out of the country, although many became boat people and uh, found that as a means of, of, of getting away. What's significant here is if you look back then at the 1976 presidential election, Jimmy Carter versus incumbent Gerald Ford, Vietnam wasn't an issue. It was eclipsed by Watergate, uh, Jimmy Carter's calling card, as it were, was that he was a Washington outsider and would clean up Washington. And Gerald Ford, by virtue of having pardoned Richard Nixon, was a marked man, as it were, who could never get out from under that. Uh, the economy was shaky. And those were the two dominant issues in 1976, not the disastrous end of the Vietnam War, which at that point was pretty much without parallel in American history. Nonetheless, without parallel or not, when people went to vote, 
That wasn't what they were thinking about. Biden clearly is thinking the same thing that you are thinking here, that it's domestic issues that are going to dominate American politics next year and, and in, in, in three years. That's what he's focusing on. But of course, you said there were also some possible uh, pitfalls and dangers with this strategy. Right. Well, remember, Biden was already in the Senate. He was a freshman senator when Saigon fell uh, and throughout the 1976 election and, and, and no doubt remembers that and, and knows also very well that there is broad support, not just among Democrats, but among the public at large for getting out of Afghanistan. And that's basically what he focused on in his Monday afternoon address earlier this week. And I think he, uh, he's basically right that with some caveats, there's not going to be much of a price to pay, a little, uh, but not much of a price to pay uh, for what's happened in the last week in terms of um, electoral outcomes. There are some caveats. If uh, Americans are killed in the uh, week or two in which they'll be uh, getting their people out and getting their uh, allies out and the Afghanis who have worked with them or uh, did things like lead, uh, lead women's schools or things like that, if Americans are killed during that period, then there'll be some hell to pay. If any Americans are taken hostage, there'll be more hell to pay, as there was for Jimmy Carter uh, in 1980 for his inability to get American hostages released uh, in Iran. But short of that, I don't really see significant political consequences, particularly since there's some very huge domestic issues that are on people's minds, notably the pandemic notably the uh, economy and, and the general partisan warfare, uh, which mobilizes each side to come out against the other. Uh, I think that's what will dominate uh, the congressional elections of, of 2022 and possibly the presidential elections of 2024, not Afghanistan. And let's remember that Donald Trump pledged to get us out of Afghanistan even earlier than Joe Biden, in, in effect, did. Uh, Trump said it should be out by May, and uh, in this case, it was August. So, yeah. let's stick with the Trump, the Trump deal, which sort of boxed Biden in. Uh, Trump made this deal with the Taliban a year and a half ago in Doha. It was a totally Trumpian deal. I'm getting out and screw everybody else, in particular our Afghan allies. The deal was that. Trump would agree to withdraw all uh, American troops if the Taliban would agree not to attack us on the way out. And part of the deal was we would leave the Afghan government and the Afghan army to negotiate whatever deal it could with the Taliban. And of course, that deal ended up, for the army at least, being surrendering. They saw Trump's withdrawal as correctly as this was the end for them. They weren't going to have American support, American intelligence, American air cover. And much as they may have disliked or even hated the Taliban, they also uh, disliked and hated their national government for its massive corruption and incompetence, and they weren't going to fight to defend that government. So Biden, this was the dilemma that Biden faced. Uh, what else could he have done? Could he have reopened the negotiations in Doha to do something to protect the government of, in Kabul? Well, Biden has opposed our presence in Afghanistan for more than a decade. 
Uh, he made that clear as soon, almost as soon as Obama and he took office in 2009. So there was no way he was going to reopen negotiations. I, I think the criticism which carries weight is that, you know, there should have been better planning for the withdrawal and, and uh, it should have begun earlier. But I mean, if he had decided to keep uh, American forces in Afghanistan, uh, that would have essentially negated the agreement with the Taliban by which the Taliban had agreed not to attack Americans, which in the past several weeks as they've rolled over the country, they in fact haven't done. You know, it was kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. I, I will say in terms of all of the idiocy uh, and that the perpetuated our involvement there and just the, the incredible wrong assessments of what could be done and what couldn't be done uh, in, in Afghanistan. The little thing that struck me the most was the story that uh, as they approached the uh, Afghan army, uh, in many cases, the Taliban simply offered them, uh, the figure I heard was $150 per soldier to lay that lay down their arms and 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 go away and if you these were soldiers many of whom had not been paid in months had not been provisioned with with food uh in in quite some time and in think about it though this isn't simply a military issue this is the taliban outbidding the united <laughs> states government which spent over a trillion dollars in afghanistan uh, in, uh during these past 20 years outbidding the United States government monetarily for the allegiance of the Afghan army. <laughs> if, if anything suggests how misfired, how ridiculous our presence there was, how the Afghan state for all intents and purposes barely ever existed save as a conduit for funneling money to well-connected government officials and their friends, you know, I, I don't know what that story would be. I think this for me epitomizes just the massive miscalculation and hoping that wishes would become real that fed our ongoing presence there. So you you and I and lots of other people have been decrying America's intelligence agencies for not foreseeing what seemed pretty obvious that the Taliban had a lot of power and authority that the government lacked. And this wasn't going to be like Vietnam, where there would be a decent interval of a couple of years. So it seems like, once again, the CIA failed, military intelligence failed. And, and Biden sort of suggested that too in his speech, that you know we, this happened a lot faster than we expected. But it seems like that uh, the intelligence agencies are pushing back, getting their own story onto page one of the New York Times today. Right. Classified assessments by American spy agencies over the summer painted an increasingly grim picture of the prospect of a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan and warned of the rapid collapse of the Afghan military, even as Biden and his advisors were saying publicly it was unlikely to happen that quickly, according to the unnamed officials. We assume these officials are CIA types or defenders of the, of the CIA. So, I mean, you could call this kind of a cover your ass operation that the New York Times is participating in. But clearly there's a blame game about who didn't tell who, who lied, who knew what was going on. What's, where, do you, where do we stand on this at this hour? Well, there, there 
always blame games when some major policy uh, collapses. That's to be expected. I think there's plenty of blame to go around probably to all. Uh, I think Joe Biden deserves some credit for realizing more than a decade ago that this was not a helpful intervention, somewhere between pointless and deleterious in its consequences. But it's not as if America's intelligence agencies have had a particularly good last 30 years. <laughs> yeah, they, now they, that you mention it. They, they, they blew the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq question, which was a major mistake. And they failed to note uh, the impending collapse of communism and the Soviet Union, which had been the major focus of American foreign policy since 1946, more or less. So, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) I'm sure there are some agents who were more prescient than than others uh, in Afghanistan over the last uh, month or two. But, uh, you know, we spend a hell of a lot of money on intelligence, and it's not entirely clear that we're getting our money's worth. Our money's worth. Well, let's not forget more recently than the fall of the Soviet Union, the Afghan papers, which the Washington Post published in 2019, this was a trove of secret US government documents about the war, sort of the Pentagon papers of Afghanistan. They were the product of an inspector general's project to investigate uh, the the root failures of the American war in Afghanistan. They interviewed interviewed 400 insiders, the usuals, generals, White House officials, diplomats, and so on. And the the Washington Post summarized their findings, quote, senior U.S. officials failed to tell the truth about the war in Afghanistan throughout the 18-year campaign, making rosy pronouncements they knew to be false and hiding unmistakable evidence that the war had become unwinnable. The Afghan papers published two years ago, somehow that was not as big a deal as the Pentagon papers. Well, and that relates to why, honestly, it's not gonna be that big a deal electorally that what happened in Afghanistan in the last week happened. And that is to say, the American public checked out on this war a very long time ago, partly because the Bush administration really uh, was concerned about Iraq, which had actually nothing to do with 9-11, unlike Al-Qaeda, which did, uh, and which was at the time based in Afghanistan, and committed much more soldiers, blood, and treasure to Iraq than Afghanistan. And Afghanistan has sort of been on a very low boil for a very long time, not getting much, much press, much media, There were 56,000 Americans killed in the Vietnam War. Uh, The the total number of American casualties after 20 years in Afghanistan, I think, is still under 2,000. 2,400 counting the the contractors. 2,400 counting the contractors. So it's not as if the American public was particularly paying attention to this war. And the Pentagon Papers broke at a time when uh, the war was in Vietnam was still raging. Structurally, it was very like what, what the Post did, but you know, it, it also had the clandestine uh, nature of the, re- of, of the release of the report. It was, it, was, it was a very big story because Vietnam, in a sense, was the biggest story of the late 1960s, early 1970s. No one can contend that Afghanistan was the biggest story of the last several years, or even a big story, or even a middle-sized story. 
to the American public. It's been a small story. So the big story now, Biden thinks, and we agree, is domestic politics. And that brings us to the topic we always talk about here, infrastructure. There's the human infrastructure bill, the 3.5 trillion bill. The disasters in Kabul make it all the more important that Biden get this bill passed before the 2022 election. How are we doing this week? Well, we don't know how we're doing this week. We have uh, nine center-right, if not absolutely right, House Democrats saying they won't vote for the budget bill, which the Senate Democrats passed unanimously, unless they can vote for the infrastructure bill first. But it's a package deal, as, as it's been put together, not just by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, but by Joe Biden as well, because that's the best way to ensure that both packages substantially pass as, uh, as conceived, uh, at least as you can get it through. So there's, there's really now uh, an, an obstacle, uh, and uh, Nancy Pelosi has been firm that the, the budget bill, uh, which is the first tranche, as it were, of the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, it, it begins the show uh, that the reconciliation bill will fill out uh, on stage over the next couple of months, uh, that, you know, the infrastructure bill cannot be just a, a one shot, that it has to, you know, come up just as the budget comes up uh, and needs support from the Democrats. Otherwise, it's not going to pass. And of course, if infrastructure were to come up alone, it wouldn't pass because the Progressive Caucus, uh, which consists of 96 members of uh, the House Democratic delegation say they won't vote for it unless it's accompanied by the budget bill. So we, we've kind of hit the internal conflict of the Democratic Party as uh, prospect reporter Alex Salmon uh, reported in a very good piece that's online at prospect.org today. This is sort of the last gasp of uh, Clinton economics in the Democratic Party. The uh, nine uh, center-right Democrats who have objected are led by a, a Clinton protege, Josh Gottheimer, who voted more with Republicans and Trump, 34%, than any other Democrat in the House. And so the fact is the Democrats haven't cleaned out the Augean stable, if that's <laughs> how you pronounce it, of the kind of uh, center-right politics that dominated the Democratic Party in the mid-1990s. And our other big preoccupation here over the last few weeks has been the recall of the California governor. We all got our mail ballots in the past uh, week. So the Democrats have now launched a huge effort to get everyone to fill out their mail ballots to vote no on the recall of the governor. Uh, we're concerned, of course, because as you and I have said here more than once of that, that very good poll that showed that that likely voters are pretty much evenly divided on, on this question, even though Republicans make up only a quarter of the electorate. What can the Democrats do to motivate voters to cast a no ballot? Well, the Republicans uh, are, are running a number of candidates who hope to become governor if the recall is successful. And the one leading in the polls, Larry Elder, is, a, uh, is, is sort of a Trumpian before Trump was Trumpian. He's been a, a talk show host for 30 years. He's a longtime skeptic of, uh, of climate change, even as Northern California burns to a crisp, uh, an opponent of abortion rights, of the, of the existence of a minimum wage, let alone raising it. And I think most immediately uh, of concern 
which I think is the strongest argument Gavin Newsom can make, is that Larry Elder, who would likely become governor for a year anyway, if the recall is successful, uh, is supposed to mask and vaccine mandates, which is a way, you know, of essentially dooming uh, a number of Californians to avoidable death. That seems to me the strongest argument that the Democrats can make. And if it gets out sufficiently, I think it should be enough to save Gavin Newsom. Let's save Gavin Newsom with vaccine politics. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. First up, we need to talk about what happened in Afghanistan this week and for the two decades before that. And for that, we turn to Andrew Basevich. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, the London Review of Books, The Nation, lots of other places. He's Professor Emeritus of History and International Relations at Boston University and President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's written many books, including America's War for the Greater Middle East. Andrew Basevich, welcome back. Thanks very much. Over almost 20 years in Afghanistan, the U.S. lost 2,400 troops and personnel, another 21,000 Americans have been wounded. The mission costs more than a trillion dollars, including something like $80 billion to train and arm the Afghan army. That's the army that did not resist the recent Taliban advance, and now the Taliban controlled the entire country. The last Americans are fleeing. We announced our goal in Afghanistan back at the beginning we said our goal was to bring democracy, pluralism, and social justice to Afghanistan. Was that ever possible? Could America bring democracy, pluralism, and social justice to Afghanistan or any other place? Uh, no. <laughs> Why was that not obvious at the time? I think that's the, the pertinent question. My own answer would be that those sorts of claims expressed the stupefying hubris that swept through the ranks of the policy elite in the wake of the Cold War. Hubris that stemmed from the conviction that the outcome of the Cold War was an, was an ideological victory. Liberal democracy had overcome all adversaries. But also the impression grew that it was, in essence, a military victory, that the Soviets quit because they knew they couldn't keep up, they couldn't compete. And that impression then was seemingly reaffirmed by the Gulf War of, of 1991. Bottom line, you know, here we are in the in the wake of, of 9-11, and we we think we think we're gonna reshape the world, even the most distant parts of the world that we had no understanding of. So just to remind us of some of the headlines over the last uh, two decades. Remember when George Bush declared mission accomplished in Afghanistan in 2003 and then invaded Iraq? People are asking, what if we had not invaded Iraq? Maybe we could have devoted more resources and attention to Afghanistan. Or remember Obama's surge 
That was in 2009, brought the total of American troops to 100,000 with an additional 40,000 from NATO. Whatever happened to the surge? The whole American mission really was to train and equip the Afghan army. But didn't the Afghans already know how to fight? Hadn't they been fighting for, you know, decades, more than a century? The real question is why the Afghan army didn't fight to defend the government in Kabul, really, ever. I, I think the answer is because the soldiers who enlisted in that army, some of whom almost immediately disappeared, they didn't believe that the Afghan government was worth fighting and dying for. I think you can charge the United States military with failing in that we didn't design an Afghan military that was appropriate to the circumstances. But as other commentators have said, to include the members of the Biden administration, it was not within our capability to, to motivate. And the, the army was not properly motivated. Again, you know, we're, all this recalls Vietnam at the, at, the, at the last part, when the army of the Republic of Vietnam basically collapsed. We've now seen the Afghan security forces collapse. I think in both cases, uh, the soldiers didn't think that the, the existing political order was worth fighting for. And so they refused to fight. And that existing political order, of course, was put in place and funded by us. Uh, exactly. But it, but it was also imposed. You know, I, I, I can't recall the specific date, but you remember that uh, early on, uh, the United States and its partners installed Hamid Karzai uh, as the president of Afghanistan. And, and I think it's not too cynical to say that U.S. officials expected that Karzai would, by and large, uh, play along, you would cooperate. And, and it was in a matter of years that Karzai was demanding that the United States leave, demanding that U.S. forces depart, that U.S. forces were not welcome in his country that he supposedly governed. And of course, the response was Washington was, well, no, we're going to stay. We're going to stay even though we're obviously not welcome here. Given the history of Afghanistan, going back to the days of the Russian occupation, going back to the days of, of British imperialism, it would appear, I'm not a, Afghan, a historian of Afghanistan, but it would, it would appear that Afghans don't particularly cotton to foreigners being in their country telling them how to do their business. Uh, and, and they resist. And again, historically, they've de demonstrated a remarkable uh, capacity to resist against uh, na imperialist nations that, by almost any measure, uh, are, are more powerful. So that's the picture over the last couple of decades, over the last century. There's been a lot of discussion in the last few days about the last week or two, and lots of people are saying Biden ha handled this badly should have done it differently. Lynn Cheney, for example, says the status quo of a couple of weeks ago could have been maintained and the Taliban takeover, at least of Kabul, could have been prevented. She says if Biden had kept 2,500 to 3,500 American forces on the ground conducting counterterrorism and counterintelligence operations. What do you think? I think that's an interesting bit of speculation. Uh, there's really no reason uh, to to take that uh, seriously. The charge is certainly correct. 
that Biden mismanaged the the final extrication of U.S. forces, and and for that he should be held accountable. But to to go from there to saying somehow Biden lost the war, I think is a is an entirely entirely inappropriate leap, and it lets it lets all kinds of people off the hook. You know, it, it lets it lets uh, what four other administrations uh, off the hook. It lets uh, it lets both parties off the hook. It lets the generals off the hook. I think the res- actual responsibility for this failure is widely shared. It, we should assess, you know, who ought to be held accountable. We should try to learn something uh, from from such a disastrous uh, outcome. But I think the notion that, gosh, if we just kept a couple thousand troops for what <laughs> a few more decades, uh, that that somehow that would have produced a happy outcome, I think it's a it's a comment that's simply designed to score uh, partisan points. I guess I say this because I'm not in Washington, but this is not a time to be trying to score partisan points. It's a time to try to contain the damage, you know, to 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 put some damper on the scope of this catastrophe, and then to try to come to a deeper nonpartisan understanding of of how this happened. There is a strongly nonpartisan aspect to this to this end game. Trump made that deal with the Taliban negotiated in Doha that we would pull out completely if they stopped attacking us. And the government in Kabul was left on its own to negotiate whatever it could with the Taliban. In other words, we negotiated with the enemy while excluding the president of Afghanistan. How could there be a clearer signal that we wanted to get the heck out of Dodge as as soon as possible? And the Taliban stuck with their part of the deal. And and Joe Biden stuck with the deal that Trump had uh, negotiated. And, of course, some of the Monday morning quarterbacks are saying, well, that was a big mistake. Biden should not have fulfilled the agreement that Trump made with the Taliban. What do you think? I think you're making the key point uh, that uh, this is a bipartisan failure. I think anybody who offers a contrary argument is being simply dishonest and and cynical. Now, there's plenty of dishonesty and cynicism in Washington. I get that. I don't think that that we ordinary citizens should take all that seriously. We ordinary citizens, again, yes, let's tag Biden with accountability for the mismanagement of the drawdown, the final stages of the drawdown, a, a drawdown, as you point out, uh, that was initiated by other people. But then let's let's widen the aperture, the inquiry about how this all came to pass. Only then will we get to truthful conclusions. And one other party I just want to mention here who shares the responsibility. We've mentioned the four presidents. We've mentioned the the generals. What we've seen, especially in the last couple of weeks, but of course over the last couple of decades, is also a gigantic intelligence failure. The CIA, on which we spend a huge amount of money, did not seem to have any idea that the Taliban were about to uh, act so so quickly and so uh, completely. Should we be surprised that the CIA is missing the most important thing that has happened this year? Well, you know, not, not surprised, I suppose, but we know from the the so-called Afghanistan papers published by the Washington Post, that government authorities were feeding the the American people a line, that they they had serious questions about 
the capacity of the Afghan security forces, but the legitimacy of the, legitimacy of the government. And they found it, I guess, politically convenient to dissemble. And it's only now that the consequences of that dissembling becomes apparent. I must say that, you know, I've been like, like many people, I suppose, you know, I keep going back and forth between the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Guardian trying to figure out what the heck's going on. Uh, and it's astonishing. The frequent, frequency with which I'm now reading articles, the headline basically says, the U.S. knew all along that it was losing. Well, if it knew all along, <laughs> I have to say, nobody told me. <laughs> I don't think anybody told the rest of the American public. So the responsibility for this debacle, I think, uh, should be widely shared. And, of course, the last time the Taliban ruled Afghanistan, they imposed their strict version of Sharia law. Afghan women were pretty much excluded from public life. Girls were prohibited from attending school. Female teachers and doctors and nurses worked under very strict rules. Public executions were the norm. Uh, often of women accused of various moral offenses. There were these horrible spectacles of executions on sports fields and in stadiums. Do you think uh, all that is going to start up again in the next few weeks? I have no idea. I don't think I would assume that the Taliban of the you know, late 1990s, early 2000s uh, is necessarily the Taliban that exists today. Uh, again, I, I don't pretend to understand uh, what, what's going on in, in their leadership. But the last time they behaved, as you you accurately described them behaving, uh, they ended up paying a pretty pretty heavy price. It could be uh, that they would like to remain in power longer. It could be uh, that they would find some value in uh, workable relations with other major powers, whether the United States or somebody else. And therefore, it could be that they would temper their conduct. I'm not predicting that they will, uh, but it seems to me that that is at least a possibility. I would argue that the United States now needs to be seriously engaging with the with Afghanistan's neighbors uh, in order to try to uh, identify uh, a, a cooperative program uh, that can help lead to stability in Afghanistan and perhaps lessen the Taliban's propensity uh, for this kind of uh, egregious behavior. I'm not saying that's going to be easy, but I do believe that Afghanistan's neighbors, Pakistan, Iran, Russia, China, India, they have a real interest in this country, not simply being a place where anarchy prevails. Uh, and it could be that they would be able to exert themselves in some way uh, to produce a you know, a, a, a somewhat less dark outcome than the really dark outcome uh, that we're speculating may be on the horizon. But, you know, let's see. Let's see. 20 years of hubris, ignorance, and incompetence, promises made, promises abandoned, and now defeat and failure. Andrew Basevich, his essay, America is Not an Indispensable Nation, appears in The Nation and Tom Dispatch. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Andy. This was great. Thanks. Same old story.
It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for TV Talk with Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime critic and writer for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, the LA Times op-ed page, lots of other places. And she teaches at the USC School of Cinema. We reached her today, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. Well, Afghanistan is on our minds this week, of course, and we recall that there was only one member of Congress who voted against going to war in Afghanistan back in 2002. That was on a bill that gave the president, remember it was George W. Bush, nearly unlimited power to wage war in Afghanistan or any place else he wanted to. Joe Biden voted for going to war. He was a senator at the time. Bernie Sanders voted for going to war. He was in the House at the time. John Lewis voted for going to war. The only one who didn't, the only no vote, was cast by Representative Barbara Lee from Northern California. And now there's a documentary out about her. It's called Barbara Lee Speaking Truth to Power. It opens Friday at the Royal in West LA, and it's going to be streaming on iTunes, Apple TV, and Lemily Virtual Cinema. You've seen this this uh, documentary. Tell us about Barbara Lee speaking truth to power. Well, I think if, if anyone fully deserves a hagiography, it has to be <laughs> Barbara Lee. Yes. Um, and the, the film is directed by Abby Ginsberg, who also made an interesting film about Albie Sachs, the uh, South African apartheid activist who was a great hero of mine when I was growing up because I had lots of South African expat friends. And uh, as hagiographies go, this is a very good one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It does tend to sanctify Barbara Lee somewhat, but but not fully. And in fact, what you've just mentioned receives a lot of attention at the beginning of the film. uh, And it's nicely contextualized her voting no as a minority of one in that uh, what really launched her career as a progressive Democrat, although it took a while to get there, um, is her learning to speak as a minority of one. And she herself um, says that when you're African-American or a person of color in general, you've got to learn how to, you know, find the courage to be able to do that. Um, she was encouraged by her father somewhat. He was a retired lieutenant colonel and a military man. Wow. In fact, he wasn't really very much present when she was growing up in El Paso, Texas, uh, but not because he was an absentee father, simply because he was a military man and he, he just wasn't there. So her mother did most of the childcare, as often happens. She was in two early relationships about which we don't learn very much and we don't really need to, but one of them was abusive uh, and she got out of both, moved to California. Um, By that time, she had two small children who actually speak in the documentary. Now, of course, they're not small children. They're actually very large children, both (laughs) sons. Um, And very, uh, speak of her with great love and affection. Went to Mills College, took her kids into class with her when she couldn't afford childcare, and then went on for a graduate degree in social work. 
Now, during this time, she acquired two mentors and heroes, um, one of whom, of course, was Shirley Chisholm, uh, the first black woman to run for, for president and also a person who taught her how to speak in the voice of one that you had to do that. And the other, of course, was, was Ron Dellums. In fact, uh, she was his chief of staff for a while and then replaced him in Congress when, when he retired. She did have a brief flirtation with the Black Panthers, um, but for the most part, she decided to go into mainstream politics because um, of her interest in uh, poverty, race, social injustice, all the homelessness and, and uh, a very strong belief in, in democracy and a desire to really rally the black vote to for people to vote that she felt that that was very important in a in a democracy and has been extremely active uh, to those ends ever since she also one of the things about barbara lee is that she has an unrelentingly pleasant demeanor that also makes her a great strategist that she can she can be very upfront with people like former Secretary of Education, if such we can call her Betsy DeVos. And <laughs> I said to her quite openly in Congress, you don't care about people of colour, leaving DeVos uh, open mouth, it's featured in the film, but also able to talk to people who didn't necessarily agree with her. And she really believed in, in believes in, in um, freedom of speech. Uh, and she's been able to achieve an awful lot uh, in those areas, especially in regard to rallying the vote and, and so on. We don't learn a great deal, as I said, about her personal life, and it's really not required. But um, there is one uh, right at the end, uh, in what I suspect a scene that is staged by Ginsburg, we see her, it's for maximal cuteness. We see her in her sister's house. She's got several sisters, so many, I, I couldn't really keep track of them because they all look very much alike. And they were all very good looking in, uh, in their youth and she still is. But she's trying to make sweet potato fries. Her, her sister is trying to make sweet potato fries. And she's making a big deal about the fact that Obviously, she never had time to cook because, you know, she's in Congress from eight in the morning until about 11 at night. Now, of course, the thing that's stuck in my craw, even though I love sweet potato fries, is the fact that I very much doubt that such a scene would have been created if the subject had been a man. Yeah, It's all about, you know, her not being able to cook uh, and, and so on. It's all very good humoured, but it was really redundant in what is otherwise a very good movie. There is a very nice surprise at the end of the movie, which I will not reveal. Thank um, you. Altogether, this is uh, this is a lovely movie, not least because she she seems to generate geniality wherever she goes, and yet she's able to get away with all these oppositional stances. I assume the two are connected. <laughs> I want to get back to her lone no vote on the uh, authorization for the use of force back in 2002. My understanding there is that she was not a, has never been a pacifist and she wasn't against George W. Bush responding to the 9-11 attacks with military force. What she objected to was giving the president a blank check 
to start a war with no fixed goal, no end date, and any enemy he chose. That turns out to be the really prescient thing that she saw could happen as a result of this. She, it is. I mean, she quotes a, a, a pastor, an African American pastor, who went spoke before her and said, "Let us not be the change that we otherwise oppose." Um, and that was very much her belief at the time. It got her, as you can imagine, death threats, all kinds of flack. But later on, um, her precincts, you know, earned her a lot of commendations from people, given what transpired. The trailer, which I've been able to watch, includes lots of talking heads, starting with AOC, uh, Cory Booker, various other people. Are these just sort of enjoyable endorsements, or is there any substance there? But people say, I suppose the substance is the ways in which she influenced them. That, and certainly people like AOC, who has shown a considerable ability to speak as a, in a voice of one, or sometimes in a voice of four. But mainly it's an adornment. I think that uh, Ayanna Presley is actually uh, quite substantive in, in the things that she learned very much. And I, I think that Barbara Lee also works... Uh, mentoring uh, student activists today. She actually does that uh, on a regular basis. She's also the only person, uh, so the movie claims anyway, the only congresswoman, congressperson who goes back every single week to actually talk to her constituents in Oakland um, in person. And we have one exciting announcement for our Los Angeles audience. Barbara Lee herself will be in town doing a Q&A after the 4.30 screening on Saturday at Lemley's Royal Theater. That's the one on Santa Monica Boulevard in West LA, where the film will be playing for a week starting on Friday. It's also uh, going to be starting Friday on YouTube Apple TV, and at Lemily Virtual Cinema. To repeat that, Barbara Lee herself doing the Q&A after the 4.30 screening on Saturday at Lemily's Royal in West LA. Now for something completely different. Can you recommend a film that is not about the congressional authorization for the use of force in Afghanistan? <laughs> Definitely, because this film is, is about sex. Okay. Lots of it and untrammeled. It's a film, the film is called White as Snow, which make you listeners into the realization that it is yet another retelling of the um, Snow White fairy tale with uh, for political purposes. It's made by Anne Fontaine, who has made a number of, of fairly kinky and quirky uh, films with both a, um, a psychoanalytic, I would say, and a political point of view. One is Dry Cleaning and the other is Gemma Bovary. Uh, and a third one uh, is How I Killed My Father. So she's a very indie <laughs> filmmaker. She's a little bit to wink at the audience for my taste, but always quite intelligent. And this is a retelling, she's of course not the first feminist rereading of Snow White, um, where lots of reversals take place. There was in, for example, in 2013, a Spanish, very beautiful Spanish film called Blanca Nieves, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, made by Pablo Berger, um, that was more overtly political. 
So it's not the first feminist reading of, of uh, Snow White, but it's probably the most licentious. Okay. <laughs> so it's not about the branches in the forest, this one. Um, and while I absolutely believe that Anne Fontaine would, would choose a fairy tale that was based on, uh, uh, that was, you know, written by the brothers Grimm, because that suits her sensibility, since the focus on sex here is a little strange, given that the Grimm brothers were uh, puritanical moralists. <laughs> so I assume that it's, it's uh, on purpose. Lou Delage, who's a very beautiful and I think talented young um, French actress, plays, uh, it's a contemporary movie, a young woman named Claire, um, who is infinitely biddable and very easily influenced. She's like a piece of clay in the hands of her wicked stepmother, who is played, of course, by Isabelle Huppert, um, who's enjoying herself hugely, but mostly what we see of her is applying very red lipstick in a mirror, and she does altogether too much of this. Um, meanwhile, uh, Claire because she's so beautiful and so innocent, has drawn the attention of her stepmother's lover. And as a punishment, um, she's sent off to a, a, a village in the French mountains. And just her presence there completely unlocks her latent sexuality, um, which we see in a lot of shots of heavy breathing, uh, bosom display, and uh, uh, new shots of carnal interchange with one, two, three, four, five, six, golly, seven men. Are they dwarves? They are not dwarfs at all. In fact, they seem to be very large. There's a pair of twins. Um, and of course, it's, it's, it's very um, kinky, the, the sexuality. But poor Lula Lage doesn't have a great deal to do but pant. Um, <laughs> in various various positions and for her it's a it's a kind of a liberation uh, for us it gets to be a bit of a repetitive liberation because you're just expanding to all these different seven men i uh, have to ask a question at this point do these seven men sing hi ho hi ho it's off to work we go they don't sing at all in fact <laughs> and maybe that's just as well because they they're quite a uh, shall we say, a motley crew without revealing too much. Um, but in the meantime, um, they, far from, uh, uh, they do come to support Claire against her wicked stepmother who shows up in very different mode. And this being an Anne Fontaine movie, um, she doesn't want her altogether wicked. She wants her also um, full of female desire um, in ways that I'm trying not, not to reveal. Um, so it's a fun movie. Uh, there is no prince, which one would expect from a movie of this kind. But what there is is a lot of very supportive undwarfs uh, and one very happy uh, and liberated young woman. White as Snow, a feminist retelling of the Snow White story starring Isabel Huppert as the evil stepmother. It is playing in theaters now and not streaming yet. Is that correct? They are awaiting an announcement, I was told. And we have time for one more recommendation briefly. This is one that for a while, when I first saw it, I was a little bit hesitant because 
every morning one wakes up to so much misery and suffering a moment, uh, at the moment. Um, you know, it's become almost unbearable. But I, I do think that there are certain things that we simply have to bear witness to. This one is called Missing in Brooks County. And it's about... Um, it's about trying to track missing persons by the relatives of people who have tried to cross the border from Mexico into the United States. Also, this one is also set in Texas, uh, in the town of Falfuria. And then we find the Southern Texas Human Rights Center, which is much less grand than it sounds. It's a small shack in which a, a Latino American citizen has devoted pretty much his later years, he's a, he's a vet actually, um, to helping to identify uh, what's left of the bodies of people who have tried to cross. The film is structured around the 1994 decision of the Clinton administration. Um, to deter illegal immigrants by directing migrants into dangerous crossings and therefore to deter other immigrants from, um, from crossing. It was completely unsuccessful in that regard, but it was quite successful in killing off the ones who did cross. So it's a, a difficult uh, movie to watch because there's a lot of uh, bodies of whom all that remains is a femur or uh, a bone of some kind. Uh, and we also witness the, the white ranchers and vigilante groups who are, you know, who, who go and take away the water that he has left for the immigrants to try and get them through this very dangerous crossing. What they die of, for the most part, is dehydration and drinking the contaminated water that is available to, to them on the journey. And uh, the film goes into... Um, both the families and interviews border patrol people who mostly, you know, seem to be, I mean, certainly they have a camera trained on them and they know that, but they, they actually seem to be decent guys who are just trying to do their jobs. They're not the policy makers. Um, and for the most part, it's revealed that these people were escaping uh, gangs in Mexico. Some of them, most of them, in fact, are very young. Um, there's one who's only 18. Uh, and it's a very sad uh, but essential movie um, that also shows us the historical origins um, of uh, American deterrent policies, which were by no means uh, begun with Trump, although he made them infinitely worse. The film is, is directed with great delicacy, I think, and tact um, on the whole by uh, Jeff Bemis and uh, Lisa Molomat. And it will play at least for one week uh, at the Lemley Glendale. And I don't yet know about streaming. And one final reminder, the documentary Barbara Lee, Speaking Truth to Power, our big movie of the week about the one member of Congress who voted no in 2003 on giving presidents, starting with George W. Bush, virtually unlimited authority to make war in Afghanistan or pretty much any place else they wanted. That film opens Friday at the Lemley Royal Theater in West L.A. for a week. Opens Friday on YouTube, Apple TV, and at Lemley Virtual Cinema. And our big news to repeat is that Barbara Lee herself will be doing a Q&A after the 4.30 screening on Saturday at Lemley's Royal Theater on Santa Monica Boulevard in West L.A. The film 
Barbara Lee Speaking Truth to Power also has a good website with a lot of information. That's at speakingtruthtopowermovie.com. One word, no spaces, speakingtruthtopowermovie.com. It includes info on how to get involved, the national engagement campaign involving community groups, campus screenings, and other venues. More information at Speaking Truth to Power Movie, no spaces, speakingtruthtopowermovie.com. Ella Taylor is our TV and film critic. Thank you, Ella. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.